Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. We have been studying the parables. Um, these are discipleship parables, and uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 gives us one of the most difficult of all of the parables that Jesus spoke, but also one of the most necessary for us to understand. I will read from verse 24 through 30 and then skip down to verse 36 for Jesus' own interpretation of the parable. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and they said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said to them, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. All allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now verse 36. Then he left the multitude, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. <laughs> our students know that whenever you come to exam week, one of the things that you're always faced with is reviews. I never liked reviews except just before exams, and then I always uh, liked them very much. Uh, I have to review just a little bit for the benefit of the people who listen to us on the radio and for the great number of visitors. We are always outnumbered about this time of the year uh, by people who come up here to uh, rest a while in Montreat and to uh, uh, share in the inspiration of the beauty of the fall colors. And uh, we do welcome you very heartily. And uh, let me explain a little bit of what we've been doing. Uh, we've been looking at some of what are called in the King James, King James Version of the Bible the kingdom parables. By a king, a king rules over a domain. 
and it's the kingly reign of God and of the Son of God over his people. We call these discipleship parables. The word disciple means learner, and the word disciple also means one who is disciplined by. If you take the magazine Christianity Today, and I highly recommend it, there is a tremendous article by some professor at a California university in this current issue on discipleship and church membership. And he says that nowhere are we commanded to go and make church members. But we are commanded to go and make disciples. And discipleship is an interesting thing. The word Christian is used precisely three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used about 269 times. And the word disciple always, when it's related to the word Christian, means a Christian. We are, set, we are told in the book of Acts in 1126 that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I've often thought it would be a great thing if the Christians today were called disciples, if we really went back to the business of learning what it means to truly follow Christ. Now, the, the rules have not been changed. Jesus did not give these rules for Peter and James and John and Andrew and Thomas and the rest of the disciples and those who would listen to him uh, in the early years of the church. And then somewhere along the rule, we said, well, this is not up to date, so let's change this to where we don't take it quite as seriously anymore. That did not happen. We are accountable for the words which the Son of God has spoken, and we are accountable to what the Word of God teaches regarding discipleship and everything else that has to do with faith and life. The first of the discipleship parables dealt with the matter of repentance. Uh, two sons who were told to go and work in the vineyard, and one who used very profuse, polite language but did not go and do what he was told to do. And we concluded that it is better to finally believe what at first you could not say than to say at first what you will never believe. Then we saw the different people who were hired to go and work in the vineyard. The landowner who hires these people represents God and his son, Jesus Christ, who comes to call us to serve him. There were people that were hired at 6 o'clock in the morning at the first break of day, and they were told that they would be given one silver coin for their 12 hours of labor. They were to work until 6 in the evening. And then the landowner went again to the marketplace and saw people standing idle. And so he hired some at 9 o'clock, some at 12 o'clock, some at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and finally he hired some at five o'clock, just one hour before quitting time. And in each of these parables, study the dynamics, the element of surprise. The son who rebelled against his father early in the morning and was a terror at breakfast was a joy at supper because he repented and did the will of his father. And here the surprise is that the landowner is going to pay those who worked only one hour just as much as those who worked all day long. Now, it is a great blessing to us that God does not deal with us after strict economic terms. And it means that the thief on the cross can be saved at the last hour. There is no one-twelfth of the love of God. And that's what Jesus is teaching, that God's ways are not our ways and that he does not do things as we do them. 
Now then, on October the 5th, last Sunday, we tried to look briefly into the parable of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. You remember the Pharisee who went up to brag upon himself to God as though God did not know all about him? His prayer went wrong when he thanked God for too little a thing. He was self-righteous, and you cannot be self-righteous. That's a contradiction in terms. Your righteousness has to come from outside yourself. His prayer was great when he said, God, I thank thee. Now, that sounds good as far as that goes. We ought to thank God. But he thanked him for too little a thing. I thank thee that I am not as other men are. That's where his prayer went south. Uh, I have a neighbor across the street uh, named Will Helmy. Don't tell him I said this. But uh, uh, he's got some roses in his yard. And uh, I grow roses, too. And if I should wake up in the morning and say, God, I thank you that my roses are so much prettier than Will Helmy's. He doesn't know a thing about growing roses. They're all full of black spot, and the bugs are eating them up. But you, you see, that would be a sorry way to pray. Uh, that would be thanking God for the wrong thing. George Adams has lots prettier roses than mine, and Ivan Stafford has pretty roses, too. I'll run the list off right quick. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, we are not to thank God for, uh, too li for things. It's good to be thankful for pretty flowers, but not in contrast to someone else, to put them down. Now then, that publican who went back down to his house justified, I've often wondered what he was ever doing up there at the temple anyway. He was an outcast, a renegade who had sold out his people and was thoroughly hated and had done many despicable things. It would be like a member of the mafia uh, coming into the church. And the Pharisee saw this publican who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And all he was saying was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've often wondered what brought that publican up there to pray. Was it that he had a son who was following in his sorry footsteps and the seeds of the evil which he had done were now coming out in his children? Was it that he had a little boy or girl that was dying? Was it that his wife had cancer? What was it that made him come to the temple to pray? Whatever it was, he prayed, and he prayed earnestly. The secret thoughts of men. I don't know why you came this morning to church. God does. It might just be a boring habit. The secret thoughts of men have a loud voice in the ears of God. He knows why you're here. He knows whether you came to worship him. He knows whether you take seriously what his son says or not. He knows whether you're broken-hearted and sorry for your sins, or he knows whether you sit back and grin and don't care what people think who take their faith in Christ seriously. He can see all the way through us. And so Jesus said that that publican who went up to the temple to pray and cast himself on the love of God and the mercy of God went down to his house justified, rather than the arrogant Pharisee who went up there to brag upon himself and did not 
rely upon the mercy and the love of God. The publican did cast himself on the love of God, and those who do, those who do are justified. That's why he said, he who humbles himself shall be exalted, and he who exalts himself shall be brought down. We've seen this happen again and again in politics, and we see it happen again and again in life, but it'll happen at the judgment. There's always that element of judgment that comes into these parables. Now today we consider this parable in Matthew 13. Uh, it immediately follows the parable of the sower. The sower that had gone forth to sow his seeds. And you remember the, the seed is the, here, the word of God. And the good seed falls on four types of soil. There is the cynical, there is the hard soil. It's the beaten down path. Uh, that beaten down path, by the way, is trampled by animals. And uh, if you analyze that soil, it's probably got a lot of nutrients in it. It's a very fertile soil. But it's hard and crusty, and the seed lies on the surface, and there is contact, but there is no communion. This means that there are people who come and occupy a 25-inch, some of them more than that, inch space in the pew, and uh, 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 they, there is contact, but there is no communion. There is no communion with God. They're, they're, they are there, and their ears are there, and their brain is there, but they never let the truth of God really get down in their hearts so that it's going to make any difference when they walk out the door of the church. Contact but not communion, cynical. And Jesus knew that that hard, and let me say this about the hard soil. Whenever it does get broken up, I've seen the cynics be like that elder brother, rebellious. When they do get broken up and the seed does get inside them, boy, they certainly make wonderful saints. You can see this. It happened to a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Uh, there is another one, uh, the seed that falls in among the thorns and the thorns, uh, the seed that falls on the shallow ground and that's superficial and this is probably the biggest thing that we see today. It's not taking any relationships seriously. That the people who gather in church and claim to be brothers and sisters in Jesus and sing these wonderful hymns and say these great words in prayer or like people who ride on an airplane from one city to the other, and when the airplane lands, they get off and, and don't speak to each other again. They talk while they're on the plane together. But when they get there, they don't visit anymore. They don't want any entangling relationships or any deep commitments. But when we belong to Jesus Christ and to one another, uh, we have to have deep commitments. And our responsibilities are deep. And Jesus teaches that all the way through. Then there are those who are choked by the riches and cares of life. And then there is the good, good soil. And the good soil is that which responds with an honest heart. It does not talk beyond its experience. It receives the word with faith and brings forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Not all of us produce the same amount of fruit, but it's with honesty and a good heart brings forth fruit. Now, what happens to that good one? That's why he tells the parable uh, of the tares. Because this time, the believer is the one who has responded to the good seed and believes. But do you know what happens when the sower comes forth to sow his seeds? And they fall, and the good seed begins to appear. There is an evil, sinister one who comes under the cloak of darkness, and he too is sowing seeds. 
but his seeds are evil. And Jesus is telling us that we're not to be surprised that there are hypocrites in the church. That we're not to be surprised that there are horrible things happening in the world. That we will have no ideal growing conditions here. But that we will come up against hardships and we will come up against tragedy and the surprise is that these tares have come up and the servants of the farmer come to him and they say, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these tares come from? Do you want us to go out there and pull them up? And there are two surprises. First, there is a surprise that the tares are there. Now, no Christian should be surprised that there is evil in the world. There was a, a, a day a few years ago when modernist liberal theologians ridiculed the idea of a personal devil. Man was just going upward and onward forever, better and better every way, every day. But all of that's been shot to pieces with two world wars and with what goes on in Cambodia and what goes on in Iraq and Iran and what goes on inside our hearts and what goes on in our opulent America today. The seeds of evil are here. And the Son of God said, An enemy hath done this. And the same Son of God is the one who said, and he must have told himself about his temptation in the wilderness because there were none of his disciples with him. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and the devil came and tempted him. Jesus must have told that himself. So Jesus recognized the existence of a supernatural evil one who came to destroy and to compete with the works of God. The reason that he came into the world is to destroy the works of the devil and to take away sin and to prepare for his second coming which will be when it is all ultimately uh, comes out. Now, when I've said this, um, I want to read just John Akers warned me not to read anything that was so long like I've been doing. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, this is uh, a little book. Well, it's not so little, but it's a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Letters and Papers from Prison. For those of you who do not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, uh, he was a, a theologian who was captured by the Nazis who stayed in Germany and tried to bear a testimony for Christ, was arrested by the Gestapo, and who just a few days before World War II ended in 1945 was hanged uh, uh, by orders of Hitler and his agents. And he wrote, speaking of this business of the tares coming up, what he says now is this. Now listen, this is very important. The great masquerade of evil played havoc with all our ethical concepts. You see, he had been brought up in that liberal idea that there was no real evil in the world, and now the Jews are being burned up in incinerators by Hitler. And all that they had been taught about national socialism 
being the great savior of the world with its experiments with human genetics and abortion and everything else that went with it, a scientific humanism. And Bonhoeffer was disillusioned by this, but he said we shouldn't be surprised by it. The great masquerade. Hitler didn't come out telling everyone that he was a devil. He came out masquerading as someone good. He wanted to clone perfect people. He wanted the Aryan race to be superior. The masquerade, evil is hiding behind a mask, has played havoc with all our ethical concepts. For evil to appear disguised as light, charity, historical necessity. We need more living room, said Hitler. Our social justice is quite bewildering to anyone brought up on our traditional ethical concepts. While for the Christian who bases his life on the Bible, it merely confirms the fundamental wickedness of evil. When they liberated Dachau, when they liberated the horrible death camps, and they saw all of this light not from barbaric savages someplace in some remote jungle, but from the brainiest scientific minds on the planet Earth. That's what they do when they're not controlled by God. So, he says, when the tares come up and the evil is there, don't be surprised. The Bible has taught us that the wickedness of evil will be there. And it's something that we have to deal with. Now let me read this other quote of his very quickly. Bonhoeffer says, I believe that God can and will bring good out of evil. He'll overrule it. Even out of the greatest evil. For that purpose, he needs men who make the best use of everything. We Christians will have to compete with evil, but we need to make the best use of everything. Uh, we sometimes... Uh, uh, think, oh, I could just be a wonderful Christian if I didn't have to take care of the baby in the morning, and then I could read the Bible and pray. Uh, if I could only not have all these things distracting me, the phone ringing and everything else. Well, we're not going to have the perfect growing uh, things there. And so we need to make the best use of everything. I believe that God will give us all the strength we need to help us resist in all times of distress but he never gives it in advance. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is warning his disciples that they will be facing competitive features. If you see evil and wickedness in the dormitory and you're a student, don't be shocked by it, not even in a Christian college. It's going to be there. You're going to have to take your stand for Jesus and be tough. In the business world where you have to live and work, you're going to find it. In the world about you, you're going to have to exercise some backbone and some strength from God. There will be television things that will have to be turned off because they make an assault upon your spiritual growth. And Jesus is telling us here that that assault is going to take place and we're not to be surprised by it. He doesn't give us the strength in advance, but he will give us the strength at the time. Cornelia Ten Boom, Corrie Ten Boom, was one of those people who was arrested by the Gestapo 
for hiding Jews and keeping them from being burned by Adolf Hitler. She and her family were very Bible-believing Christians who prayed for the salvation of Jews. And when Hitler started his havoc, Corey's father said, now is the time that we can show that we really love them. Not just talk about loving them, we can prove to it that we love them. And so they literally put their lives on the block to rescue Jews. She says in her little book, not good if detached, which means that if we're broken away from Christ, we're not good, that she once asked her father, Father, what shall I do when the evil one comes upon me and great powers of evil are there and I may be tortured or I may be persecuted? And he said to her, Corey, when you were a little girl and you were going on a trip to see your grandmother, when did I give you your train ticket? Did I give it to you a month in advance? And she said, no, sir. And he said, did I give it to you a week in advance? And she said, no. And he said, I gave it to you at the time you needed it. And so will God give you the strength when you need it. Now, he does not give it to us in advance lest we should rely on ourselves and not on him alone. A faith such as this should allay our fears for the future. Though the wrongs seem oft so strong, Christ is the victor yet. I believe that even our mistakes and shortcomings are turned to good account and that it is no harder for God to deal with them than with our supposedly good deeds. A lot of times we botch things up trying to do good deeds. I believe that God is no timeless fate, but that he waits for and answers the sincere prayers and responsible actions of his disciples. He is speaking to us. Now, no one likes to hear about evil. We don't like to hear about weeds. This is a part of a speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave at Harvard. I love that speech. I got a copy of it and read it over and over and over and over and over. I wish preachers had enough guts to preach like he did at Harvard. But you know, he hadn't been invited back to Harvard. And I don't think he will be. And I don't think Jesus would be invited to Harvard either. There were people that wrote smart aleck editorials in the paper when Solzhenitsyn spoke of the spiritual exhaustion of America. It's funny that uh, Nicholas von Hoffman, who writes for the Washington Post and is by no means, no stretch of the imagination, any person that I'm sympathetic with editorially, but Nicholas von Hoffman said that when, when uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn was clobbering Soviet Russia, the USSR, everyone was applauding him and all the newspaper people were putting their microphones under his nose and the television cameras were there. But when he went to the Brahman University of America at Harvard, and denounced the spiritual exhaustion of America. He said, then editorials appeared, one in the Washington Post, why doesn't Solzhenitsyn stick to writing novels? Why does he talk about, why does he make himself a commentator on social issues? He's too spiritual. Isn't that interesting? He wasn't that way when he was hit in Russia. But when he brought it home, when he saw the corruption that exists in a materialistic capitalist society and the spiritual exhaustion, then why didn't he, why didn't he stick to writing novels? 
He spoke as a prophet. Destructive and irresponsible freedom was what he spoke against. Granted boundless space here in America. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, the misuse of, the, of liberty for moral violence against young people. Motion pictures full of pornography, crime, and horror. It is considered to be part of freedom and theoretically counterbalanced by the young people's right not to look or not to accept. Life organized legalistically has thus shown its inability to defend itself against this corrosion of evil. No wonder he was denounced. It's possible to take our freedoms and use them for evil purposes. And so Jesus' parable here is not a popular parable at all. The tares would come. And so that's why most of the preachers don't want to read Jesus' words in explanation of the parable. When the disciples came and asked him what it meant, he was very plain. The one who sows the seed is the son of man. That's a term for the Messiah. The field is the world, he said. Christians are going to be in the world. And in his great prayer in John 17, he says, I do not pray that you will take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. That is, these are the believers who are left in this evil world to witness for Jesus Christ. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. Just as there are people who are born again by the Spirit of God, there are people who are directed by the devil, and they are called sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers of the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out uh, of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit uh, lawlessness. Dr. Nelson Bell, one of our elders in this church and a moderator of the General Assembly, has a very valuable book, the title of which is While Men Slept. And he tells what happened to our churches and our so-called Christian colleges and universities across America while men slept. One came and sowed evil seed. But you cannot pull them up at the same time lest you root up the wheat. So he says, leave them alone. There will come a time. This doesn't mean that there shouldn't be discipline in the church, but it means that in the world this will happen. The Son of Man will come and cast them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sons of the kingdom of their father, and then Jesus shouted something. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, if there is anyone here today who has not acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus, help them to know that he has said, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast down. That those words which beckoned Edward Scott to open the door and let Jesus come in, are effective today, and that he stands and knocks at the door, and that we may open the door of our heart and let him come in. For some of us, O oh God, who have asked him in a long time ago, but have become full of lethargy as far as our discipleship is concerned, help us to be quickened to know that your strategy 
is that we are not angels, but we are redeemed sinners, and we have to compete in a world where evil is around us, but that by the Holy Spirit's gracious power we can bear fruit and that we can live for you in the midst of a perverse and dark generation. So help us to be faithful. Help us to take the good word of God and the power of prayer and the fellowship of other believers and apply the truth of Scripture to ourselves day by day so that we may walk in a manner that pleases you. Lord, we thank you that this parable is one of hope because it shows ultimately how strong you are. Help us to be obedient disciples. Protect us in the midst of the weeds so that we may be your people and help us to show your love even in less than ideal settings and help us to be growing Christians day by day. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forever.